and welcome to Syslog. Today is our first anniversary episode. And to commemorate that event, today we're gonna talk about some hardware. Um, but first, Julian, have you written any C programs lately? Uh, no, I actually wrote Rust code. Um, but I'm still, but I'm still doing software. But, uh, since we're going to talk about hardware, we invited Werner. Um, Werner is the person who explains hardware to people that write software as a living. Um, I'm not sure Werner is, whether this is a good uh, introduction. Well, um, I only explain hardware from time to time. Most of the time I'm tasked to work together with you guys on the software side of things. But what is interesting, since you mentioned Rust, I actually prefer Ada Spark, which is kind of the same family of software and Ada Spark has, of course, the ADA roots, and ADA is the ancestor of VHDL, and that's more my line of work. Ah, <laughs> there's a connection. And uh, yeah. if you want to know more about ADA, uh, we actually talked, I think, in our first episode about ADA quite yeah, a bit. Exact so, exactly yeah, exactly one year ago. Shameless plug. <laughs> yes, shameless plug. But still, ADA is really interesting, and uh, I think it was a good episode. So, but back to Werner. <laughs> yeah, Werner, um, so recently um, uh, you have been on a couple of papers for microarchitectural vulnerabilities, um, where I think you mostly contributed in um, the background chapters of how this all fits together with the microarchitecture. And um, before that, we've worked together at FireEye. I think this was the first time where I met you. Exactly. So FireEye was the first time where we met in person, but um, uh, your reputation preceded you because I learned about this Julian guy when I was working at Intel Labs in the United States since you and I, we both worked um, in the same organization underneath uh, Rich Ulick, who is now the CTO of Intel. And is he now? Of Yes, he is. And a couple of ex-colleagues uh, at Intel still remembered you as well. So when we did that famous death march, for example, um, people were talking about those crazy Germans that couldn't get enough walking in. And, and that was quite fun <laughs> over there. Ah, so the person that I always met on the toilet in Intel is now the CTO. Okay. Interesting, uh, interesting development. I broke flow. I broke flow. <laughs> This is going to be an interesting yeah, but, episode. <laughs> yeah, but, but back to the origin of your question, yes. So I was involved in the original Meltdown and, and Spectra publications where all the researchers joined forces and put the stuff together. And also later on, um, people sometimes called me and, and wanted to get my feedback on how they described the microarchitecture. So I had a little bit influence there as well. And um, nowadays, um, we offer training courses to institutions, to other companies, where we go into the details on, on how processors work, why branch prediction exists, um, why it is not stupid to do speculation, and how all these things fit together when you want to, to write some transient execution attacks. So that's my exposure to microarchitecture and at Intel. Um, 
I started off in the networking business and then worked my way more and more towards the core CPU architecture side. And, and one of the final jobs I did at Intel in Germany was, was writing an assessment of the scheduling in a new microarchitecture. So I really looked into quite a bit of the internal workings. But my main focus when it comes to CPU architecture is, is actually the the memory architecture sub-design. So, but you joined us operating system people quite some time ago. And um, this is sort of an unscripted question here, but how was your experience uh, joining the software side of things back then? So do, do you, is there like a difference in approach? Is like a difference in mindset? How would you describe it? Um, well, yes, there is a difference in mindset, but the triggering point for joining or getting more exposure to the software side, that was back in the days of the single chip cloud computer of Intel, the 48 core P54C chip that Intel Labs brought, um, brought out to academic institutions when I met a couple of professors and talked to them and then Another colleague of ours, Thomas Pressure, was a student at the university, and the kind of things that I wanted to do, to do with CPU architecture, they always required some sort of system-level support. And of course, um, you're always restricted if everything you do on the hardware side has to be fully transparent to the software. And my claim was that if you work together in a true hardware software co-design fashion, then you can unleash a lot more potential. And that was back at Intel in Braunschweig when we developed a prototype CPU with completely different memory subsystem and with a hypervisor layer in between, we made sure that Linux sees exactly the same hardware interface. So we ran an unmodified Linux on top of our modified hardware architecture underneath. And that's how I got interested in in microkernels, hypervisors, and all low-level system software stuff. Okay. So this is a, quite an impressive journey. Um, now the question is, Flo, how do we get to our uh, actual topic of this podcast? So, I mean, the topic of the grander topic of this podcast is uh, software and operating systems design or low-level software. Um, and the obvious question, we're talking about hardware, how is it relevant to software? Why, why, do, why should software people care about the hardware they run on and they program for? Well, the question should rather be what do the software people expect from the hardware side? If they just want to get faster and faster hardware without changing anything on their software side, then we are kind of stuck. Um, but I believe since energy efficiency becomes more and more important and also performance is harder and harder to achieve because we run out of physical scaling opportunities, I think those two camps, they have to work closer together. As they worked together back in the 1960s and 70s, it, it was only later that, that software and, and hardware got truly decoupled. And I guess, yeah, the, the x86 architecture is the real breakthrough because before that, you had those 
vertical silos, you bought something from IBM, you got the CPU, you got the computer, you got the operating system, you got everything from them. And only later you got to that kind of horizontal market where you get the CPU from AMD, you get the computer from Dell, you get the software from Microsoft, and you run some open source uh, word processor on top of that. So that only appeared later in, in history. And I think um, that led to some sort of disconnect between software and hardware, and especially if we look at the security vulnerabilities at the moment, um, they come from system-level software that is designed with features that were invented back in the in the 1960s. So, if you look at virtual memory, the paper dates back to 1970, and there hasn't haven't been a lot of changes since since then. So, the fundamentals are still the same. If you look at all the protection mechanisms, they are also back in ancient history, and especially you two guys, you like microkernel design, what you'd like to have is some sort of low latency context switching where you don't have to get rid of all the state that is in a processor and, and throw out whatever CPU performance you have for a short duration until the processor pipeline recovers. And I think that's where software people should really get interested in how hardware works because that's how they can optimize their own um, software and maybe influence the hardware guys to develop something more useful than just another level of TLB hierarchy or page table hierarchy to, to address bigger memories. You, you touched on um, two parts, and that is that um, the industry moves away from the horizontal model that I think was pioneered by Microsoft in the 80s, where you can mix and match software and hardware vendors, and you have like reasonable standards between them, and we're going back to the, the vertical one company ships everything model. And um, the other thing is that you touched on, which I think is the thing we should go in first, is uh, why do people even start talking about uh, the CPU architectures again for a long time at least for the desktop and server use cases we as operating system people just kept uh, paying Intel more money and they would ship us a better cpu every year and um since this this has stopped a while ago um well, now you have to pay amd in order to get the highest performance cpu yeah i know you see uh, many different cpus popping up uh, left and right and everything is interesting again. And then uh, I think we come to the first point where, so which part of the CPU architecture is actually relevant for an, for an operating system? So I think maybe we touch a bit on the microarchitecture versus instruction set architecture topic. Well, yes, um, and this brings my favorite topic when I do those classes on CPU architecture. There are some fundamental laws, and, and one of them is called the Iron Law of Compute Performance, and pretty much all microarchitectural decisions can be traced back to this um, Iron Law, where you just look at um, what influences the number of instructions or the kind of work that that gets processed by by the CPU, and that is the important part when we talk about the, the ISA versus microarchitecture thing. So far, 
the software developers, they just looked at the ISA and, and left the hardware people completely freehand to develop everything underneath. And if we look at um, future performance improvements or improvements in general, I think this kind of solid wall between microarchitecture and the program itself cannot be maintained. It, it has to be taken down because, for example, there is no guarantee with respect to caching in, in the ISA and you have to speculate that the processor does something in a certain way. Um, the hardware itself, it says, well, I made no guarantees to the software guys regarding caching so I can do whatever I want. And the result of that is this infamous uh, meltdown spectra transient execution debacle where you leak secrets all over the place because the software guys, they have absolutely no control over what is going on in hardware. And if we expose some of the properties of the memory architecture via an appropriate ISA specification, then we could gain on, on both sides. A couple of things would be easier on the software side, a couple of things would be easier on the hardware side, and I think that's um, why people are talking more about computer microarchitecture now. But you, um, so, so we talked about, we talked about this distinction. So the inst instruction set architecture is, is what I as a, as a programmer, uh, program against and the microarchitecture is the thing that exec that sort of implements this. And, um, I think still most people, um, especially if they don't want to write, um, very low level code or code that has to run very fast, uh, will still, uh, make this assumption that the instruction set architecture is the only thing you need, really need to care about. And that is true. In order to run some piece of software, you just need to need the need to know the ISA specification because that's the contract between software and hardware developers. The the software people can rely that everything written down in the ISA specification um, will be met unless there are some functional bugs in there, and the hardware people have to do everything in their power to meet those guarantees that are given in, in that contract. Um, my claim is that while this is true, if you want to get to, the, to peak performance, you have to know what is going on in microarchitecture and you cannot have this completely blocking ISA layer in between. It, it has to become more transparent so that um, software can tell the hardware what it should do and the hardware can provide hints to software what it, what it has done in order to, to get really the benefits from true hardware software co-design at, at that point. But there's also an interesting uh, distinction between uh, application programmers and uh, operating system people. Because for application programmers, you can pretend that your compiler or your uh, language runtime is like a perfect layer above the instruction set um, so you don't so you can write a Perl program and this will be a sort of indistinguishable uh, it will behave indistinguishably uh, running on an ARM CPU and an x86 CPU and the same is true to some degree for uh, most other languages in user space as well but for us operating system people um, this abstraction by the compiler is incomplete because uh, the operating system has to directly interact with with features that are not available to 
to user programs. And this is all the protection stuff that, that you mentioned and, um, the virtual memory implementation. How do you do context switching? Um, how do you do, um, uh, the interesting looking things that you want to do in a kernel and all these things? So I, I would, I would just throw out there that operating system people are like, very aware of, of really obscure corners of the instruction set and um, have always been um, interested in how all of this works because this is the only way to figure out how to use it correctly, um, at least to some degree. I would agree with you to a certain degree, to a certain degree but I think um, it goes beyond the operating system people because... If you look at uh, vector arithmetic, that's where the ISA comes into play. And of course, you have the compiler in between, but, but if the microarchitecture offered true vector capabilities, like in the Cray vector machine style, instead of this, um, um, excuse my language, in this, this lousy um, fake vector stuff that we have in the form of SIMD, AVX, SSE, whatever you name it, instructions, then those application programmers would also like to see that. You see that when it comes to parallel design, if you had low latency communication mechanisms between two threads, potentially with register to register communication with all, without the whole IPC overhead that goes in between right now with all those layers that are provided by whatever, um, system software you have in between, then I think the application people would also love to see more architectural features. And that doesn't have to be the OS guys that have to implement all that. Okay, so you're saying that basically every, maybe people who and do games or listed in uh, hardware features. That is quite simple. I, I think we live Not just in a world OS guys, but also we could pay I don't Intel know, and uh, AMD and whatever other company big dollars to get us better CPUs and then have faster software. But we reached a point where those CPUs simply don't get any faster. We cannot increase the clock frequency as we want. We run into thermal limits, whatever. So we have to spend the dollars on more intelligent software instead of um, better performing hardware. And I think that's the reason why the software people should also care more about the hardware that they want to use for their new, modern, whatever algorithm they come up with. There's another good point in the... Um, so the, one of the consequences of uh, hardware, of CPUs not getting faster... Um, every year, at least not in the simple way it did in the past, is that uh, the the especially Intel, I think, tried to distinguish itself in adding lots of features instead. So like, hey, it will compute almost the same as last year, but now you have like yet another instruction set that optimizes your one special case that you have, or ah, now we have this other new CPU mode that you can use for this one specific use case, and you have this prolification of um of features so for example um paging on x86 can fill i'm not sure how many pages like a hundred pages of spec at this point 
Um, there's like paging for user space applications. There's paging, paging for VMs. There's paging for enclaves. There is uh, uh, an API for paging for the upcoming um, trust domains. Um, and so, so you see more and more features being added. Do you also see this as a consequence of, of having nothing else to sell? Well, yes. And we have the problem that transistors are essentially for free. So you can put in transistors. You should be a bit careful. You don't want to have wires along with them um, because data transfer, again, costs, um, costs energy and should be avoided. But if you just put in transistors that do weird things, then that's excellent. And if they take away something that required more effort in software and makes it easier in, in hardware, then you got good bang for the buck when you put in those those transistors because you cannot clock them any faster than, than before. And, and that's why we end up with all those features. And what is interesting moving forward, I think Florian, you asked about about it, what makes those uh, CPU architectures become more interesting. If you look at the design, what's going on in, in data centers, we have those mix of CPU with uh, GPUs in order to speed up certain tasks. And what we see now is that FPGAs are becoming more and more important in um, data center workloads as well, because people realize if I always do the same function, um, let's just put it in hardware. And especially when it comes to those fancy artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever algorithms, there is quite frequently the same kind of arithmetic that goes on, the kind, the same kind of uh, combination of inputs in order to form outputs, maybe some multiplication in between if you have neural networks and so on. Um, that's perfect if you have a kind of data stream processing environment like in an FPGA the, that's better than any imperative programming language that you run on a general purpose CPU. Um, I guess what we will see in the future is that so far the processor vendors, they focused on implementing those extra features as part of their ISA. And moving forward, I think they will open more opportunities to the actual software developers by having this tightly coupled FPGA CPU fabric that they can work with. I've seen this on the horizon for the Intel Xeon line for a long time, but uh, I'm not sure whether you can actually buy it by now. Uh, but I think I, I did notice that uh, all the big CPU vendors tend to buy FPGA companies. Right. Um, that's the interesting part. Um, NVIDIA will be coming a major CPU vendor as well, since it um, took over ARM. And NVIDIA has just its GPU side of things. And, and we are now looking at those automotive application space where we have a lot of um, picture processing in order to do feature detection and so on. And I'm not sure whether the FPGA approach by, by Intel and AMD or the GPU approach by NVIDIA will, will take over there. But um, NVIDIA is certainly under pressure because they had 
almost 100% um, market share with their GPUs for this AI stuff. And the FPGAs have already eaten into that if you look at the market share numbers. Hmm. But uh, before we come uh, to the um, to the politics sites, um, oh no, I said politics, uh, the, the business sites. The, <laughs> the before we <laughs> leave the technical part. <laughs> yeah, before we fully leave the technical part. Um, beyond what is written in the ISA document. So, yeah, so I have, for, I have one, one question. That is, um, coming back to this explosion of features on x86, um, what I wonder as a software person is um, how much complexity does this mean for the people that implement actually these hardware, uh, these, these instruction set extensions? So for example, um, is it like a linear increase in complexity to add yet another ZIMD instruction set to add AVX 4096? I know we have this now. This is called the, the matrix accelerator extensions or something like that. No, the AMX. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, is there like a linear cost to adding these things or does this interact with everything and it? it well, it, it depends on, on what part of the chip you're looking at. If you look at, at those vector stuff things, um, going from AVX 512 to AVX 1024 would be fairly straightforward. Um, you just widen everything. Um, that's, that's pretty much linear. Where it becomes super linear is if you look at the instruction set size itself. Because if you count the number of x86 instructions, the big bumps in instruction count or opcode count always came with those uh, new vector instructions because the vector width is hard-coded in, in the opcodes themselves. That's what I meant with my earlier comment regarding proper vector architectures like the, the Cray machines, for example. There, um, you could simply increase the vector width from 512 to 1024 and you wouldn't even have to change a line of code in in your C code, for example. And if you look at the RISC-V vectoring extensions, they go down this proper vector stuff. And, well, RISC-V is not the only one. If you look at the ARM vector extensions, not their SIMD extensions, but their, their um, vector extensions, they also have this variable vector length stuff. So there, if you go down with SIMD for the pure execution part, it's pretty much linear. The, um, cost comes when you look at the front end where you have to decode all those instructions and do that. And there is also a high cost when you look at the memory subsystem because now you have to have data paths between the execution units and your caches that support those wide registers so that you can still execute uh, a vector add in one clock cycle, for example. Um, that kind of breaks you then later on when you have to widen everything because 512 bits divided by 8 that's um, 64 bytes if I recall correctly so we are yeah, we are nicely at, at cache line uh, sizes here um, so You mentioned the, the RISC-V vector extensions and the ARM vector extensions so I also looked at those and um, looking at them now 
it seems like obviously the right thing to do. <laughs> Now the question is, so as you said, so the nice thing about it is you can, you design this instruction set extension once and it will be the same instruction set that can be used for um, bigger and bigger um, execution units with bigger and bigger vectors and more, more um, multipliers, adders, what have you. And um, my question would be, so Intel chose the the way of adding a completely new instruction set uh, every four years since 1995. Um, was it just that back then no one saw the problem or is it just a uh, time to market consideration? No, um, bluntly stated, I would say that, that Intel just followed what the software people told Intel to do. The software people did not want to rewrite any piece of software, so Intel had to just add new instructions, new instructions, new instructions. So they started off with MMX in, in the pit. No, they started with x87, then they replaced it or they enhanced it with MMX instruction, then they came with SSE, SSE2, and whatever. And you always had the pressure that the old software had to, to run. And since they missed the point to switch to a proper vector architecture at the beginning, they were stuck in this SIMD mode and simply added new instructions whenever they increased their vector width. And ARM had followed the same trajectory and later on they switched to this vector approach probably because they saw all the stuff that was going on in the RISC-V ISA development um, community and if you look at those custom chips I and, and this is pure speculation but I could guess that they were afraid of the competition that they got from those RISC-V cores there that forced them to leave the SIMD path and also move to a generic vector architecture. Do you think it's like a stone on Intel's foot, the whole instruction set explosion? So they certainly have a lot of money. So you can, so my view of big companies is that they can live with lots of inefficiency for a really long time because they have the money to, to, to drag it on. And no one has to take hard decisions. You can just hire two more hardware designers and they will do the MMX support for the 2020, uh, Tiger CPU. And in all fairness, um, If you have a multi-billion dollar business, you don't want to take that risk because if you fail, then you're in deep trouble. And you see that with um, AMD over a decade ago when they made fundamental changes to their uh, TLB stuff and so on, that that quickly gets you out of the market if you screw up those, those bigger changes. Um, so I perfectly understand what Intel was doing there. Um, If, when it comes to the, the stone on the foot, as you put it, I'm not sure because Intel is selling to a different um, customer base than, than ARM. Um, Intel is shipping ready-made products that you can buy and, and insert into your data center, whereas a lot of the ARM cores 
go into um, heavily customized designs where you buy the microarchitecture, the implementation, but all the stuff surrounding it um, comes then from the guy that, that does this low power device for whatever purpose it is being designed. And so they have to be a lot more flexible than, than Intel because Intel and AMD and to some degree also IBM with its power series, they have a huge installed software base and first and foremost they have to keep their existing customers happy whereas with ARM a lot of their designs go into new products where you also run um, new software to a certain degree. Well, they also did a different approach um, for their systems compatibility. For a long time, they didn't really care that much about backwards compatibility in the operating system layer. They only cared about backwards compatibility for user applications. And I think this this has resulted in like... Um, a multitude of page table formats for 32-bit ARM and uh, like a, a big headache, but they have also standardized a lot. So, and uh, with the move to to uh, bigger devices, the ARM software side starts to, or the, the the complexity that you have to use an ARM chip as a software dude um, is pretty much the same as x86. So if you buy a big ARM chip, it will boot with UEFI and have AACPI and you can even get the windows running. So um, they've, they've come a very far, um, they've come very, very far in the last 20 years. Well, yeah, it's funny that you bring up this ACPI story because I was in a discussion with a couple of ARM guys and, and they complained about it. And in the end, the um, their original approach simply was not maintainable. Maintainable. They did not have an auto discovery software layer at all, and that's how they came to to ACPI because that was some software that was already existing. They, nobody likes it, but at least it had this auto discovery feature, and that was essential for the ARM devices because it, it was simply not scalable to bake all those hardware-specific features into whatever binary and, and ship that to the, to the end customer. Okay, so maybe before we fully leave the tech, I think we haven't, we have lost the technical thing a while ago. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Werner, I know you feel strongly about this, but um, I will ask you anyway. So, do you see... Uh, a fundamental tie between the instruction set architecture and and performance or or power consumption of a CPU. No, this is like a that's really one of my favorite topics. And just in preparation for this um, conversation tonight, I looked up some old data that I had uh, lying around, and I saw a design of a core that was vaguely similar to an x86 core and it beat an ARM M3 in terms of performance per watt in terms of size of implementation and whatever so this was it was not really an x86 design because they threw out things like segmentation and so on that, that nobody uses anyway um, and if you get rid of all those weird things and also for example the um, push A, pop A instruction that, that 
is just useless. Um, if you throw out a lot of those x86 quirks and you live with a very simple user supervisor mode, um, flat virtual memory model, then you come to a core that is smaller than an ARM M3 and more power efficient than the ARM M3. And, and that shows you that the ISA itself has very little, in, well, not very, well, yes, very little impact on the power efficiency. What is more important is the actual design point where you want to go to. And of course, this low power x86-like core is not full x86. So if you want to run your old MS-DOS, it will not boot if you run Windows 10 on it, it will not boot because, um, yeah, it doesn't meet the ISA specification. But if you want to run some microcontroller code for your embedded SSD, VR leveling, whatever code, then this thing is good enough and you can use your standard GCC compiler tool chain because it will emit those standard x86 instructions anyway and, and not those esoteric things that that also exist in the manual. Okay, so just to get this straight, you are saying that if Intel threw out all the legacy crap they still ship with their processors, they might even be somewhat energy efficient? Well, they are energy efficient right now as well. If you look at um, top single thread performance, then, um, yeah, you have to go with with, uh, with Intel or with AMD in, in that case. They are pretty much the same. And if you look at the ARM equivalent, if you look at those Apple CPUs, they reach similar performance, but uh, they only do so because they play the very same tricks that, that Intel and AMD play. And at that level, the ARM ISA has some advantage because it's easier to decode eight instructions in parallel with a fixed instruction width than with a variable instruction width uh, that Intel and AMD have. But that's just transistors that you have to throw at the instruction fetch and decode uh, unit, and there is no inherent advantage of, of the ISA that says, well, ARM is because of the ISA structure um, better suited for, for higher performance. That, that's really the design point. How many instructions do you want to decode? And the energy is, is not really spent in, in those decoders. The, the energy goes into, into other parts of your CPU design. Can you explain the design point thing again? So this is like a, a two-dimensional um, graph in a, in a very, very simplified way with... Um, well, I, I don't think it's, it's two-dimensional. It's, it's really multidimensional because um, there is chip size that comes into play. You have products that go onto, onto old manufacturing technologies because they have to be super cheap. Um, you have the leading edge process technology because that's what you sell in your um, high margin smartphones. That's if we look at um, data centers, you have the combination of, of networking interfaces and um, data movement is more important than the number crunching. And that's what I mean by, by design points. If you design 
processor that shall work for, let's say, climate simulations or um, I could imagine if you if you work on new COVID-19 vaccines and so on, then this processor has completely different tasks than if you look at a processor that just switches whatever mobile traffic is being routed between the back end and your, your endpoint. And if you look at your coffee maker or washing machine, the microcontrollers in there, they have, again, completely different operating constraints. And that yes, they have to. They have to show. They have to execute the Android that's on the smart thingy on the coffee machine. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's the reason why we see um, a lot of the smaller CPU architectures disappear. Because if you go back, let's say 10, 15 years, well, 10 years, you had um, eight-bit processors, sixteen-bit processors, and they were slowly moving to thirty-two-bit. And I think 32-bit is, is pretty much the norm for anything you develop today. And a lot of those low-end embedded things, they even move to 64-bit designs. And if you look at the consolidation going on in, in automotive space, for example, you run hypervisors there where you just consolidate different tasks that used to run bare metal on their individual microcontrollers. And that, again put some pressure on the microarchitecture implementation because there uh, something like interrupt latency and predictable latencies becomes much more important than um, what kind of instructions you have for addition for data movement, whether you have indirect addressing or, or indexed addressing modes, whatever. So. It's, it's really important to understand what kind of problem you want to solve and have the proper CPU for that. And, and that's less a function of the ISA and really more a function of um, the microarchitecture implementation. So that sounds a little bit like you, well, not you, but you want to move away from having a general CPU that basically works for all workloads towards something that's a little more specialized and works for, well, car workloads and gaming workloads and washing machine workloads and whatnot? Um, no, I don't want to move away. I, I think it's, it's an observation that we have those different CPUs. And if we want to consolidate also on, on the CPU design part, I think the microarchitecture diversity will not go away. What I'd like to see, however, is some more support on the ISA level for those specific tasks. Let's say um, if I want to have guaranteed latencies, if I want to have guaranteed communication um, deadlines, then you have to expose some features of the memory architecture to the programmer. And that's what I'd like to see also in the ISA um, that I can design the microarchitecture to that while I still keep the same ISA and I'm not forced to switch, let's say, to a Spark or um, Arc core or um, whatever soft core that's out there in the market. If I want to consolidate the stuff on, on the bigger cores, that's where I have to go. And, and that's the path 
where risk five offers an interesting opportunity because the base ISA itself remains constant and you get a lot of flexibility in adding your own custom instructions that provide that kind of flexibility. So you can run your Android operating system just fine. And if you know some specific, oh, Julian is laughing at me. Oh. Anyway. I, I trolled you successfully with my Android coffee machine. Now, what I'm saying is uh, the, the base software layer for the operating system should be rather constant, but I'd like to have features that allow me as an application um, developer to run more efficient on, on this specific CPU. And so, okay. Okay. So, so you went Something a little there. bit, you went a little bit into um, that you, that the base ISA um, should stay constant and then you want to build building blocks around that. Um, maybe this is a good, uh, a good uh, point to explain the differences between the x86 ecosystem where basically you have to buy what Intel sells you and ARM and uh, then RISC-V. Um, can you touch a little bit on that? Right. In, in the PC world, you basically get as a software developer, you get all the environment from some other parties and you get the chip with the ISA from, from AMD and Intel. You get the compiler probably from Intel, but you can also buy it from, um, from those certified vendors. If you have, I, I forgot the name, if you have, um, high, safety and security um, requirements. You can get GCC, you can get Clang and LLVM, um, but that's not something you develop yourself. Whereas, especially in the microcontroller part, um, people used to have the compiler tool chain provided by their um, core vendor, whether it's ARM or ARC or, or Spark or whatever. And some people allowed you or some vendors allowed you to to add your own custom instructions and they told you how to modify the compiler tool chain in order to to have your own instructions implemented and and that's something that simply does not exist in the in the pc domain that's the main difference between those arm and risk five worlds where there is a lot more customization and the rather rigid uh, situation that you have in the PC domain where everything is controlled by the big players. And again, mine, in my opinion, this is also the main driver to go to ARM in the first place because um, if you need custom video offload or what have you for your workload, then, then you have uh, uh, the option of producing this. Um, just need to go to some of the many companies that can design you something like this and they will produce an ARM chip with this specific component and you can still use all the standard tools and run all the standard software on it. But you also get your nice addition to it. And the uh, for Xilinx, I think this, they, they made a pretty extreme, um, they, they have a really extreme version of this. Um, not Xilinx. Um, This is well, uh, Silings had the same thing. If you look at their Microblaze core, um, they came with a complete development tool chain and they allowed for custom instructions with their Microblaze. Um, of course, if you look at their embedded ARM cores, then you're stuck with whatever ARM provided them because Silings did not develop its own 
um, CPU microarchitecture for that. But for the soft core side, Xilinx also provided the, the complete environment. And I can say that because we did that at Intel. We put in a microblaze core, had some custom instructions because we had some cache coherency protocol implemented completely as um, microblaze um, firmware code. And since we were running on FPGA anyway, that, that was plenty of fast enough to, to run a standard Pentium core on top of that. And it didn't even notice that all the cache transfers were actually programmed in, in C code and executed on, on a microblaze core. I guess this is not a, this is not something I can actually go and look at, unfortunately. Um, so do you think this this whole um the, the the DIY sock movement got the real kick start because Intel is basically selling the same processors for five years now or um is this like a long trend that just had a really good couple of years because um buying Intel is just not that attract uh, attractive anymore I I really don't know. I I think those pure one-trick pony processors, if I wanted to, to call them like that, that, that you get from Intel and AMD, they certainly have a place. But I think you'll see more and more applications where, for power efficiency reasons or whatever, you, you have to move towards a more custom design. And I think that's what you see with AMD buying Xilinx and Intel buying Altera, that they see this combination of FPGA programmability with their general purpose CPU, that they see that as path forward. And especially if you look at what's going on on the communication side of modern technology, if you look at 5G, um, Pretty much all the functions are now virtual functions, what used to be fixed function, either implemented in ASICs or in FPGAs, is becoming programmable. And that's where you see this um, pairing of programmable logic with some general purpose. So you can run your control plane applications with your standard Linux or whatever favorite stuff you have, and, and you run the, the data plane completely on some programmable logic because you don't want to have any kind of interference from um, software layers, either be system software or whatever, and you just want to get the maximum performance in order to switch all the network traffic that is generated by those 5G devices. I only remember 5G because that was the thing where you run Kubernetes in a base station. Um, is this actually a thing or is this just an urban myth? <laughs> Well, if you look at the specification itself, it calls for virtual functions all over the place. So they are moving towards towards that. But I'm not an expert at all in, in the design of those 5G things. Um, um, but if you look at the documents, it's virtual everywhere. Hmm. So in my notes, I, st I have this uh, European Processor Initiative. Um, so what is that actually? Um, that yeah, it falls in line with the earlier discussion we had on, on the design point. So what the European Union said is that they want to have a European processor 
specifically for HPC, high performance compute applications. Um, the problem there is if you look at climate simulations and, and whatever, um, in order to get to the required energy levels, if you want to have exaflops and so on, um, you have to cut down on the energy transfers. So what you do on a general purpose CPU, like in, in the CPUs that you run in your smartphones or on your notebooks, you waste a lot of energy um, on the memory side with cache transfers, the coherency protocol, and so on. And, and those guys that develop the climate models, they know exactly where the data resides, so they can take shortcuts. They, they love to use scratch button memory where they have to know the organization. And therefore, it makes sense to have those custom processors. And the EU decided to invest, I think, something between 100 and 200 million dollars in, into the design of such a processor because they thought it was important to have um, our own CPU line um, to be independent from, from other market forces. Um, I'm not quite sure that that's something that will pay off if you look, for example, at those 5G um, base stations where you want to run Kubernetes because those chips are not... Well, I wouldn't use a chip that, that I use for the weather forecast as a CPU that I run Kubernetes for my base station on. So I, I'm not sure how much payoff you get from those 100 to 200 million euro that, that are getting paid by Brussels for other fields because the design is very specific from, from my point of view. That sounds like we could have 10 European CPU design or one Berlin airport. Um. Right. Um, <laughs> so this sounds like a bargain. Well, that's the other side. If you look at the money um, and if you look at the CPUs that go, for example, into data centers, um, if you look at the job postings at LinkedIn, then you'll notice that Apple, obviously, but also Google and um, Facebook at the time, they had put up job offers for hardware developers. And those companies, they have a lot more money than those 100 and 200 or 200 million euro that the EU wants to pay over the um, whole course of the project for them. That's, that's probably a one-year investment if they decide to do so. And if you want to have a CPU that also goes into the data center, then that's the competition you're facing. If you believe that Intel, AMD, IBM, whatever, are not up to the task of um, providing the kind of performance or the kind of product features that you want to have in your own data centers. And so if you look at the EPI at this European Processor Initiative, you have you have two issues. I think it, it focuses on a very specific use case that the learnings are not easily transferable to other applications. And if you look at the money, I think um, you are probably underestimating the competition from other private players in that field, especially from the US side. 
Yeah, I think for every large US company, they now have a they now have a hardware design department. Um, Amazon launched their um, ARM implementation. Apple launched their ARM implementation. Um, Tesla does something. I'm not really sure what. I think they uh, have Google. their own chip as well by now. Um, yeah, Google definitely have something. Um, also, I mean, the Chinese probably have lots of stuff that we don't even know about yet. Um, but but they have lots of ARM, ARM implementations. So there's like the Huawei thing. Yeah. Not just ARM. They also develop their x86 clone, whatever status they have on, on that chip. But but yeah, um, I guess what I want to say here is that from my point of view, what we should have in Europe, instead of focusing on on those things like, well, which ISA do we support and, and do we support HPC or whatever, what we need is some kind of competency in developing microarchitecture. Because when it comes down to performance, um, there is a reason why the the Apple M1 chip is better than the standard ARM that you get from from ARM Holdings, or that it beat the the Samsung chip for the smartphone. That's because you have to understand how microarchitecture really works, and you have to get the experience there. And I'm not sure that focusing on on this HPC thing will bring that sort of experience that we need on on a broader scope to Europe. But that's just my personal impression. Are there actually European companies left that do a serious, uh, let's call it big microarchitectures? I mean, there are players that you do all the small things. So NXP makes a ton of microcontrollers and tiny socks. And I'm not sure what, what uh, um, what's a Siemens spin-off? Uh, I forgot. There is probably also do something, but is there anything left that does bigger things? No. Um, well, the next bigger thing is ARM that, that does really high perf higher performance when it comes to single thread stuff um, designs. Um, that's the whole point. If you just work on this microcontroller level where you have just a handful of pipeline stages, um, it's fairly easy. If you want to scale up and you have something like 15 pipeline stages or so, and you just have, um, let's say, four to eight execution paths in parallel, that's when stuff gets really interesting. And I don't think that we have the experience here in Europe to have those super scalar, um, highly deeply pipelined designs, and, and that's what we should have. And on the HPC side, um, you don't want to have super scalar, you don't want to have this um, these deep pipelines. You just increase by throwing more execution units at the problem because you have high data level parallelism and, and that's fundamental different, fundamentally different from having a high single thread performance. So one topic I also would like to touch on, and, and this is in, in my notes uh, mentioned as does CPU performance even matter? We talked a bit uh, in the uh, our pre-recording chat. And for me, if I look, for example, at my phone, so always when I see benchmarks for mobile hardware, you see like um, peak single-threaded performance. And I look at my phone, it's like, 
why do I care? So if I watch a YouTube video, then the CPU is probably pretty idle because it just sort of says like, here, video decoding engine, here is a large block of memory. Now do your thing. And uh, the same for having a phone call. Then it says like, the audio device, meet the modem, uh, meet the Bluetooth thing, go do your thing. And um, so for me, this is sort of a, my phone is sort of an interconnected device of special purpose accelerators and the CPU is just there to coordinate everything. And the moment you are sort of CPU bound on the, the main CPU, then, then the performance will suck anyway. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. Um, I guess that's because I'm not uh, a vivid gamer that would probably need a lot more CPU performance in order to get whatever AI implemented on my role-playing game or whatever. <laughs> have you never seen one of those? Have you seen one of those phones with cooling fins and a fan on the background? Yeah, on the back. This this is a thing. I was I was deeply impressed when I saw this online. So you have like a you have like the cooling fins, you have like a little USB thing to power the fan, and then you have like a really high performance gaming on your on your phone. But but I mean yeah. even even games I would guess these days are more on the GPU side of things than on the CPU. Um. I've never seen so for my uh, gaming rig that stands next to me, which also has like a five-year-old processor. I've never seen the CPU going over 50% in any game. Um, I guess there are games that are CPU bound, but it's really rare. But, uh, so the, so is it just a marketing thing to, to focus on, on these benchmarks? Because there's something that is really easy to see. Um, or is there actually a point? Well, I, I think one of the things is really marketing because it's it's easier to sell something is twice as fast than you have a bar chart where one bar is, is twice the size of, of the other one that's, that's obvious to the customer and you just tell, have to tell them, well, bigger is better and please pay also more money and, and then everything is good. But I would not discount the single thread performance stuff completely because if you have more and more tasks on your device then you have to multiplex them and, and that's where single thread performance comes into play because that's not data driven that's pure control flow um, that's where you need this single thread performance stuff so if you want to to multiplex different applications on your thing if you want to um, whatever is going on on your messenger channel or read emails and not interfere with whatever video playback or, or gaming stuff is going on that's when, when single thread performance comes into play and people don't want to wait one second just to see that a new whatsapp message has arrived or, or so Fair point. Then there's also like browsing websites on your phone that uh, ship like 50 megabytes of JavaScript. Yeah, JavaScript is probably the biggest driver of uh, single core performance benchmarks. <laughs> that and uh, uh, memory sales is probably also <laughs> the thing that JavaScript drives. Well, some people claim that you don't have to have 
programming languages like C, C++, Rust, or whatever, you can do everything in JavaScript now and, and get decent performance out of it. Yeah, that's true, but it's also unpredictable performance. So uh, uh, that's that's a insight I have when I had when I talked to a friend who does like low level audio uh, stuff. That um, fast is not good, but predictably fast is good. Um, and this is what uh, the typical user experience in a browser is when stuff starts to stutter and uh, the JIT has to do magic things. Uh, because someone just stored a float in an array that was only used for ints before and has to start to go de-optimizing code. So like really magic things going on. Um, and this is something that you will never have in a, in a C program or in a Rust program. It's just predictably fast uh, or consistently um, fast. Unless the C program crashed before it got to that point. And true um and um i think this is also a reason why WebAssembly is so interesting um because it it regains some of those predictable performance guarantees also for ex stuff executing in a in a browser well um that comes back to a point i made earlier in our conversation that that i'd like to have a lot more transparency in in this isa wall between hardware and software because if i as an application developer could say well I want to have, let's say, one megabyte of data that should never leave the cache. It should always reside at least in, in the last little cache. Um, then it would be a lot easier to get to this kind of um, predictable performance also when programming JavaScript because the biggest performance killer of all that exists out there are memory accesses. And as soon as you go off chip, you're basically screwed and no matter what you do with your out-of-order window, um, you cannot keep the CPU execution units um, busy. And if you get that kind of control through the ISA to the application programmer, then you could unleash a lot of performance. And right now the only thing you can do is, if you want to have at least some stutter-free audio, well, buy a chip that is twice as fast and then you have enough headroom that even in the case where, where something weird goes on you have no, enough headroom that to 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 um, get stutter free audio on in a web browser i think you have to buy a cpu that is 10x as as fast as you would actually need because you could have stutter free audio on a on a 60 megahertz cpu if you just try it hard enough but, and wrote it all in assembly but to circle back a little bit um this tearing down of the ISA wall, I mean, that's something you could do with an ARM or RISC-V design if you have, if you throw enough resources into hardware design, right? I mean, this is something you could, as a big or large company, could do um, with a custom chip. Exactly. And in case of ARM, that's a bit more problematic because you would have to buy the, the architectural license from them that allows you to modify the microarchitecture itself. So companies like Samsung and, and Apple, they have that kind of license. But for the standard customers, they, they would have to use the, the standard IP that is provided by ARM. But with RISC-V, that's certainly on the table. And that's where, where I would invest money in to come up with intelligent ideas on what to do with those transistors, what kind of, 
of cache control do we need? What kind of cache control is easily implementable? What kind of features would we need on, on the system level side in order to have our operating systems more secure and get to this principle of least privilege? So what can we do there in order to have lower latency protection domain switches instead of doing everything via the, the virtual memory management, which is first and foremost a resource management function and, and not a security function. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I would like to see and since it's basically impossible with x86, um, very difficult with ARM, um, my hope is that RISC-V is some kind of game changer here so that we get some, some innovation also on the microarchitecture and, and ISA side of things. This is also my fanboy moment in this episode now because I also think that uh, especially for that reason RISC-V will win. Because if you already want to do so, if you want to do something drastic, um, there's no point in going to ARM because you a you have to pay all your um, fancy hardware designers, and then you also have to pay the most expensive license that ARM has to offer. And if you do it with Risk Five, you only have to pay the hardware designers. Um, and yeah, the only problem that you have there is that your design will run just fine on your FPGA, but your design will not scale up so that you could make uh, a reasonable claim that it should go into the next uh, iPhone or Samsung or whatever handheld smartphone device that, that you want to sell to customers because there again the M1 from Apple is 8-way superscalar um, out of order that's not something that you design at home because you want to implement some new feature in order to have a couple less cycles on your IPC for, for your hobby microkernel. So that's the problem there. Ah, leave it to <laughs> Werner to destroy the fanboy moments. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> But no, another fanboy moment. Um, so if it's, if there's like the tried and true way of making your CPU fast and Apple chose that, why didn't the others? This is, of course, a bit of a troll question, but... Um... <laughs> I'm not sure what, what Samsung did there. I heard rumors that they were also on, on some performance levels similar to what, what Apple had with their chip. I, I really don't know what kind of trouble they, they encountered, what kind of wall they ran into. Um, in case of... Intel and AMD, my guess is that if you look at the standard benchmarks that are being used to sell the, the high-end chips, like for the data center or so, that they simply did not see the need to go the extra mile. And if you look at the latest microarchitecture generation from Intel, they also increased their, their width from four to five when it comes to um, superscalar processing of the instructions. Um, Apple had the opportunity to do even more radical things. If you look at their out-of-order windows, where also a lot of performance comes into play, because they have um, their software stack completely under control. So they don't have to worry about whatever Linux version, whatever Microsoft version, um, expects from the memory subsystem, they can simply do that. And I got some kind of 
um, internal information regarding their security stuff, they are doing really drastic things there with respect to their cache architecture, and they can do so because they run all the system software, not just the operating system, but also the software underneath, and have full control there. And if you want to sell a general purpose CPU that adheres to the standard x86 manual, then you are a lot more constrained and do not have the flexibility to change things that easily as, as Apple did there. Yeah, I think this is true. Um, since they can can control so many things uh, about the software that runs on top of it, and also the the binary, binary translation they do from x86, um, they, they have more design space than than other people. Uh, but I think they will still be uh, they still have to be compatible to the ARM um, to the ARM architecture. So I mean, it will still run Linux. And um, so I don't think how, how radical they can actually be. I mean, there is well, even this one effort uh, to port Linux to to the M1. We'll see where it goes, but at least it exists. Well, but that's exactly the point. If you look at the ISA, then the instructions that are part of the Linux kernel, they are completely the same. But the ISA also covers things like the virtual memory subsystem. And what we did back at Intel together with Thomas, for example, we switched from um, virtually tagged caches to, no, in, in, we switched from physically tagged caches to virtually tagged caches. So essentially our hardware on the chip was a single address space architecture. And we had to do all the shuffling with the different address spaces on a layer underneath the operating system. And we could do that, and by that, we could change the level one cache from a four-way set associative um, cache to, to a direct map cache with um, double or quadruple the size and, and lower access um, latency um, just by putting a different cache design in there. And, and that's what you have as benefit when you have the full system level software under control. And what we wanted to pitch to Intel at that point of time to, ha to have some sort of embedded firmware like the microcode where we do all the hiding in order to get the benefits from changing the memory subsystem underneath. But um, that was considered, well, too risky, I guess, for uh, for Intel there. So for the for the listeners, uh, Thomas used to be your intern back then, I think, uh, and is now also a colleague. That was his diploma thesis, yes. Having this uh, hypervisor there that does the translation between um, different memory architectures and what Linux expects, and Thomas then went on. Um, became an Intel employee in uh, the security division of Intel Labs. And then, yeah, we joined forces again at FireEye and, well, now at Cybers Technology. So, but um, maybe an open-ended question for the end. Um, so from my perspective, if I look at um, CPUs now, so I, I did this RISC-V hobby thing and Yes, the, the paging part of RISC-V is only three pages instead of 100. 
but it sort of has the same functionality than x86 and the same goes for arm it's all a bit same same but different same for the virtualization stuff uh, interrupt controllers how, how everything works it's it's all very very similar and then you look at the more experimental things out there so for example what you try to do but also like the mill so i think the the memory subsystem of the mill is i think also very compatible to your ideas do you think that any of these radical ideas will will um ever become a real processor or or is this the point where you're just stuck with this way of doing it and um innovation is dead um We had some discussions around that topic, um, yeah, almost 10 years ago at Intel. And my line of argument is as follows. Um, we have the established x86 stuff that focused on, on single thread high performance. Then came the move towards more power efficiency, especially in the handheld domain. That's when Uh, that was the, the coming out moment for the ARM architecture, and they were able to scale up to decent performance for the smartphone um, while achieving energy levels that at that point in time could not be met by the standard microarchitectures from AMD and Intel. And my claim is that the next push or the next opportunity to push a radically new ISA to market is probably security. Um, that's a field where both ARM and x86 um, struggle a lot because everything is mapped to this pure, pure memory resource management unit that, that you have in there and there are no inherent security properties and that's I think an opportunity for a new ISA to come to market when you can make a plausible claim that you offer a lot higher protection capabilities. And, and if you look at the standard protection stuff that goes on in the x86 and the PC world, whether it's secure boot, whether it's the secure enclave stuff, whatever, it's all an add-on to an existing architecture. And hence, it's, it's always just a couple of quarters until people break things and, and find new workarounds on, on how to do that stuff. And the interesting there, thing there is in the beginning, you ask a question whether modifications to the ISA are linear or not. And when it came to the SIMD instructions, then that's a relatively um, yeah, manageable um, design change. But if you look at the stuff like SGX, if you look at those um, trust domains that you want to have with x86 for, for the cloud environment, we have different processor modes then it's no longer linear, then it's exponential, it, it, it just explodes. And we had one talk where one guy just talked about the SGX and how it interacts with the standard processing modes. And in the beginning, you have user and supervisor mode. Probably you also know about the system management mode. And now you run a virtual machine with uh, VMX root and non-root. And in one of your virtual machines, you want to have an SGX enclave. And while you do that, um, you have some sort of page miss, which is also not, um, which crosses page boundaries. And then some sort of USB device gets plugged in. So the system management mode interferes. So you have um, to save the processor state from your virtual machine. You have the enclave. You have to switch to SMM mode and then 
people just throw up their hands and say, well, we hope it works, but um, it's impossible to cover all corner cases there. And that's where you have clearly nonlinear implications of um, CPU ISA changes to the CPU microarchitecture design. Okay, so I think this is a good uh, final conclusion. Uh, all uh, is lost. The kind, of, <laughs> the kind of doomsday prediction that fits to 2020. Yeah. Uh, all is lost. Um, Flo, do you have anything else? I think I'm still stuck somewhere in system management mode. Uh, okay, so I think then um, thank you, Werner. I think we will invite you again at some point. There are more topics to talk about, um, but I think we've discussed the, the state of hardware 2020 uh, pretty well at this point. Um, oh, yeah, at, at a high level, so we didn't even <laughs> dive into the details that we also talked about in preparation of this conversation. So. That's true, but uh, there's always... There's always the next podcast. And if the, if you, the listener, want to find the next podcast where we talk about actual technical details, um, you have to go to syslog.show, uh, where you can find the RSS feed. Um, there are also, uh, the show notes and, um, you can find our chat room, uh, there on matrix and IRC. And you can also find us on Twitter at UKVLY. I didn't, I didn't draw it in, uh, in the sky this time with my finger flow. And, um, with that achievement, I would say, um, uh, bye bye and to the next episode. Bye bye. Thank you guys. Thank you, Renner.